She's been called the Soho grifter, the fake heiress, and a little more generously, a modern-day Gatsby. There are many euphemisms for Anna Delvey, but let's call her what she really is, a thief, and a bold one at that. Anna had the cojones to steal thousands from banks, hotels, and even her closest friend. But she was no Robin Hood. The only person she spent this money on was herself, living a fabulous lifestyle few people could ever afford. So sit back, pour yourself an oat milk latte, and get ready, because the story of Anna Delvey is almost too outrageous to be believed. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll meet Anna Delvey, a con artist who swindled people by pretending to be a German heiress worth millions. Next week, we'll look at how Anna's scams fell apart in spectacular fashion. Then we'll explore her sensational trial and the way she's bouncing back from prison. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Though she posed as a German heiress, Anna Vadimovna Sorokin was born on January 23, 1991, in the city of Domodedovo, a satellite town near Moscow. Contrary to what she later told people about her lineage, her father was a truck driver and her mother a shop owner. Anna was an only child until she was 12 when her brother was born, but his arrival did little to distract Anna's parents. They continued to dote on their only daughter. Flourishing under their attentive gaze, Anna excelled in school. She was bright, clever, and popular. Even as a young girl, she showed qualities that would define her as an adult. One was the ability to think on her feet. As a friend later told the Russian tabloids, she could get out of any situation when she needed to protect herself. The other quality was her harsh judgment. She had a way of mocking people right to their faces. So toxic was her personality that her classmates were reportedly afraid of her. And it was no coincidence her favorite movie was Mean Girls. But things weren't always perfect for this wannabe Regina George. In 2007, when Anna was 16, her family moved to Germany, settling in a small town outside of Cologne. There, Anna attended Catholic school and by all accounts had a bumpy transition. All of a sudden, she was the one being made fun of. First, she struggled with the language. Then there was her outsized love of fashion, which earned her the nickname Barbie. Still, she kept her head down and made it through high school relatively unscathed and with her passions intact. Fashion was so important to Anna that when it came time to go to college, her first choice was Central St. Martin's in London, the alma mater of designers like Stella McCartney and Alexander McQueen. 
details from this period are a little murky, but we know Anna eventually lost interest in her education. By the age of 21, she dropped out of school and moved back to Berlin, but she didn't sit still. The following year, she headed to Paris and landed her first important job, one that would change her life. Anna started working at a French fashion magazine called Purple. Technically, she was only an intern, but to Anna, her job title was just semantics. Working at the magazine introduced her to a rarefied world of artists, photographers, and designers. These were people who traveled the world going to art fairs and the hottest nightclubs. Soon, Anna was rubbing elbows with the hippest, trendiest people in Europe. For someone who'd always been preoccupied with being popular, it was exactly the world she wanted to live in. Except Anna didn't really fit in. She wasn't an artist or a celebrity or a writer. She was just an intern. In her eyes, nothing special. Which is why sometime around 2013, she took on another identity. And it started with one important detail. She started telling people that she was very, very rich. Of course, this was a lie. Her father ran a heating and cooling business in Germany. He did okay, but she was no trust fund baby. But to Anna, that was a detail she could ignore. In her world of cocktail chatter and Instagram feeds, the truth wasn't all that important. All that mattered was what people said about you. So when Anna began to drop hints that she came from money, she kept the story purposefully vague. Sometimes she'd say that her father had made his fortune in solar energy. Other times she'd tell people that he worked in oil. Part of her scam's genius was in the vague specifics of her origin story. She didn't have to be swimming in money because the bulk of her imaginary fortune was locked in a trust until her 25th birthday. That's when she'd supposedly inherit millions. But for now, she skated by on whatever money she had, spinning a paper-thin but totally believable lie. Reality was inconsequential. All that mattered was that she believed it. And pretty soon, everyone she met did, too. Helping sell the illusion, she started wearing designers like Balenciaga and showing up at the most exclusive parties, all of which looked great on her Instagram feed. It was the ultimate fake it till you make it. Before we continue with Anna's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Anna's decision to rewrite her personal history may seem bizarre, but a lot of people today feel like they're presenting a fake version of themselves all the time. According to a study by Dr. Jeruvan Sakulku in the International Journal of Behavioral Science, 70% of millennials feel they're constantly faking it. It should hardly come as a shock to discover that social media contributes to this harmful phenomenon. Looking at photoshopped, perfectly filtered snapshots into people's lives, many people feel pressure to keep up with the Joneses and scramble to present a successful front of their very own. Anna did something that many people her age are already doing in subtler ways, except she didn't just curate her real life and show the best part. She made up an entirely new identity. It even came with a new last name. She called herself Anna Delvey, and soon she'd completely made herself over. Sure, some things about her didn't add up, 
Like, she said she was from Germany, but her German wasn't great. And nobody really knew where her family's wealth came from, but nobody asked any questions. And soon, Anna changed the conversation. She started talking about an idea so grand that no one would ever doubt she had the means to back it up. Anna wanted to build a private club. It would be a little like Soho House, the exclusive members-only space with luxe locations around the world. But her club would revolve around art. It would house cutting-edge exhibitions, along with galleries and studio space for working artists. Plus, it would also be a cool place to party and have dinner. Anna fleshed out her idea over the next couple of years. She decided there would be multiple restaurants, lounges, and a German bakery. The club would also be an art foundation, offering residencies to up-and-coming artists. It's unclear whether Anna really believed she'd get her utopia for artists and the social elite off the ground, but it gave her something to talk about when she met influential people at various parties. By this stage, Anna was spending time in New York City and easily weaseled her way into the city's young it crowd. That's how she met art collector Michael Sufu Huang. Like Anna, Michael was very young and very ambitious. But unlike Anna, he had genuine success he could point to. Though he was still in college, the 20-year-old had already co-founded a famous art museum in Beijing. With art connections and genuine family money, he was just the sort of person who could help Anna bring her vision to life. The two hit it off, and after they got to know each other a little, Anna suggested they go to the Venice Biennale together. Michael agreed. But then she asked him for a weird favor. She wanted him to book her flights and her hotel on his credit card. Michael thought it was strange, but didn't dwell on it for long. He'd already noticed Anna didn't like credit cards. At least, he assumed she didn't, because when they went out in New York, she'd pull out bags of cash whenever it came time to pay. So he happily got the tickets and the hotel, and Anna promised to pay him back. But she didn't. When they got home, she just disappeared, even though Anna owed him about $3,000. Michael eventually forgot about the debt, until he heard from Anna about 18 months later when he received an invitation to her birthday party at a trendy New York restaurant. Though he hadn't spoken to his friend in over a year, Michael went. But when he got there, something struck him as odd. The guests were all prominent people from the worlds of art, real estate, and finance, but no one seemed to actually know Anna. It turned out everyone on the guest list had been invited by the PR firm Anna hired to throw her the party. Then things got weirder. A few days later, Michael got a direct message on Instagram. It was the restaurant. They were reaching out to Anna's guests on social media, trying to find her. They told Michael that she'd given them a fake phone number and credit card, and they needed her to pay the bill. To Michael, it all finally made sense. Anna wasn't just a social climber, she was a fraud. The trip to Venice had been a scam. She never intended to pay her share. She'd just banked on the fact that if she never paid him back, he wouldn't miss the money. 
Now that he was on to her, Michael felt emboldened to ask Anna for the money she owed him. Eventually, she sent him the cash from a Venmo account under a different name, and that was that. He blocked her social media accounts, and the whole ordeal was over. At least, it was for him. But Michael wasn't the only one Anna was scamming, and her double life was about to get truly criminal. Up next, Anna and her scams get bolder as she goes after millions. The internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo Challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. By the end of 2015, 24-year-old Anna Sorokin had become a new person. Anna Delvey, a German heiress, fluent in the languages of art, finance, and high society. She purposefully kept the details of her fortune sketchy, but her ambition was crystal clear. She wanted to open an exclusive, members-only club and visual arts space. The name of the club would be the Anna Delvey Foundation, and she told anyone who would listen all about it. The idea for a club, named after herself no less, seems like something only a person with millions of dollars would ever dream up. But in Anna's case, it also displayed her lust for power. Back in school, Anna had delighted in being in the popular group, using cruel humor to keep her classmates at bay. As an adult, not much had changed. It wasn't enough that she'd wormed her way into this hyper-privileged elite society. Now that she was in, she wanted to control it. And creating a members-only club would make her the ultimate gatekeeper. If she had her way, everyone in the art world would answer to her. She just had to lay the groundwork so she could build her dream. In January of 2016, Anna moved to New York, by now, she had 40,000 Instagram followers and had made dozens of important connections in real estate and finance. Like the son of a famous architect who ran his own interior design company, he showed Anna the perfect space for her club in Manhattan, the Church Missions House. A landmark building on the corner of Park Avenue and 22nd Street, it was enormous, 45,000 square feet sprawled over six floors. There was plenty of space for the multiple restaurants Anna envisioned, plus some hotel rooms. But there was just one small hiccup. 
In order to get the lease, Anna needed to secure a loan of $22 million. To anyone else, this would have put an end to the idea right then and there. But Anna was bold. She didn't see why she couldn't get a loan like that. So she reached out to a lawyer who specialized in this sort of thing, and her confidence won him over. That and the assurance that she was worth 60 million euros. But Anna didn't just have business on her mind. She wanted to have fun. So after a long day pitching her dream business, she'd reach out to some young women on the party circuit and make sure she went where the right crowd was. That's how she made a new best friend. Rachel Deloche Williams was 28 and a photo editor at Vanity Fair magazine when she met Anna. Originally from Tennessee, Rachel was hardworking and level-headed, but she too ran in elite circles. Because of her job, she was used to hanging out with the trust fund kids of New York. For the most part, Anna struck her as no different from them. Although there was something odd about her. As the two got to know each other, Rachel couldn't work out what it was that felt off, but there were definitely aspects of her new friend that didn't feel like an heiress. Anna wasn't incredibly polished, she never wore makeup, and her hair was often messy. And she was, in Rachel's words, endearingly kooky. But those things were overshadowed by Anna's more winning traits. Chief among these was her hypnotizing manner, which always shone when she talked about her idea for a club. Rachel was also impressed that Anna had so much hustle. She seemed like she was actually doing something with her wealth instead of just spending it. She'd even hired a graphic design firm in London to produce an 80-page brochure to really sell her vision to investors. So despite Anna's strange quirks, she seemed like the kind of person you wanted to be around. Her aspirations were admirable, and her energy was infectious. Rachel hung out with her new friend for a month or two, then Anna left the country for visa reasons. At the same time, she was still trying to secure her $22 million loan, but unbeknownst to Rachel or anyone else, things weren't going so smoothly on that front. The first lender Anna approached was City National Bank in Los Angeles. Her lawyer had already assured the bank that Anna had millions in a trust in Europe, but naturally, they wanted proof. So in late 2016, she sent over documents from her European bank accounts proving her wealth was real. But Anna didn't have robust European bank accounts, so she'd forged the documents. Even the logos on the statements were fake. But Anna didn't stop there. When City National asked to speak to the Swiss banker handling her money, they got an email from a man named Peter Henneke, assuring them that they had everything they needed. Of course, this was just Anna pretending to be her own private banker, and the scheme might have worked, except Anna sent the email from an AOL account, which sent up a bit of a red flag for the people at City National. The bank wasn't sure what was going on, but it seemed fishy. Unsurprisingly, they turned Anna down. But she wasn't phased. She just went right to another lender, Fortress Investment Group. She brought them the same fake documents she'd given to City National, and this time it worked. Fortress was willing to work with her, but they wanted $100,000 to cover due diligence and legal fees. 
Anna balked. She didn't have that kind of money, but she knew she'd have to figure something out so that Fortress would front her the $22 million. Her solution was audacious. She'd get the money from City National, the bank that had just turned her down. She persuaded a banking executive there to let her overdraft her account. If they let her have a line of credit for $100,000, she told him, she'd wire the bank the money from one of her overseas accounts. The executive was impressed by the way Anna talked about money and agreed to the deal. City National loaned her the $100,000, which she promptly handed over to Fortress to do their due diligence. But then Fortress noticed something strange. On Anna's German ID, it listed Russia as her birthplace, but her passport said she was born in Germany. Sensing something was off, Fortress's director said he wanted to fly to Switzerland to meet with Anna's family banker. Now Anna was panicking because there was no family banker. Not knowing what to do, she pulled out of the deal, explaining to anyone who asked that she would just get the money for the lease from her father. Fortress gave back the money they hadn't yet spent on the deal, $55,000. But instead of returning it to City National, whom she'd never repaid, Anna held on to it. The money became her own personal slush fund. And boy, did she have fun with it. For the next two months, she went on a full-scale spending spree. She ate dinner at five-star restaurants every night. She lived in a $400 a night hotel room. She ordered reams of clothes from Net-A-Porter. And let's not forget the $800 hair color and $400 eyelash extensions. But Anna wasn't just spending money on herself. She and Rachel Williams had reconnected shortly after the Fortress deal fell through, and they became inseparable. All of a sudden, Rachel was enjoying the spectacular lifestyle Anna was leading. At first, the women did things together that Rachel could afford to split or even pay for herself. But as the weeks went on, Anna's taste got more and more expensive. Rachel noticed she loved to splurge. Daily sessions with a private trainer who charged $300 an hour, fancy French cuisine, and bottles of wine that she charged to her hotel room, infrared saunas every other day. Rachel couldn't keep up. And eventually, she resigned herself to letting Anna pay for both of them. At first, this was okay, but then Anna began to call all the shots. If Anna wanted to go somewhere to eat, they would. If Anna wanted to try out a certain beauty treatment, they did. Little by little, Rachel lost all autonomy in the friendship. She became what she termed later, deferential. Little did she know it was all intentional. Rachel was being groomed by the woman she thought was her generous best friend. In a 2012 study, psychiatry professor Salman Akhtar noted five different types of pathological generosity. One of them he termed beguiling generosity. This is a phenomenon in which someone gives to another for reasons that appear to be altruistic, but that are actually rooted in self-interest. Anna knew that if she treated Rachel enough times to fancy dinners and pricey workouts, her friend would eventually feel beholden to her. This would come in handy when, not if, Anna ran out of money. She knew she could eventually make Rachel her mark, 
by preying on her sense of obligation. But Anna wasn't quite there yet. She still had a few more money-making schemes up her sleeve. She just had to stay ahead of the con. And that was getting trickier every day. Around this time, Anna's hotel realized that something wasn't right. She'd never given them a credit card. When she checked in two months earlier, she told hotel management that she was a personal friend of the hotel's owner and promised them a wire transfer to cover her costs. Obviously, the wire never came through, and now she'd racked up a $30,000 bill. When they began putting pressure on her to pay, Anna acted indignant, like she was offended. Of course she had the money, she told them. It was just a problem with her bankers in Germany. They'd get their money any day. Seeing right through her, the hotel didn't back down. They wanted their money, and they wanted it now. The problem was, Anna was broke. She'd blown through the entire $55,000 that Fortress had returned to her. In just two months, she'd spent it all on clothes, restaurants, gadgets, workouts, and alcohol. And she'd even racked up $9,000 in debt. Now, pressed to come up with thousands in a hurry, Anna resorted to an old scam called check-kiting. That's when you write bad checks from one bank account to another and withdraw the money as soon as it posts, but before the checks bounce. Anna deposited $160,000 worth of checks into her account at Citibank. Then, before they could bounce, she had Citibank wire the hotel $30,000. And then she withdrew another forty dollars to keep and spend. Somehow the scheme went off without a hitch, and Anna was flush once again, just in time to take a lavish international vacation, one that would turn into a nightmare. Coming up, Anna scams her best friend, and things start coming apart at the seams. Now back to the story. In the spring of 2017, 26-year-old Anna Delvey took her money-making scams to new heights. She'd almost gotten thrown out of her stylish New York City hotel, risking exposure as a fraud. But Anna was used to being creative when it came to protecting herself and generating cash. After depositing $160,000 worth of bad checks into her bank account and then withdrawing it, Anna was able to pay her outrageous hotel bill. Plus, she held on to another forty dollars for her personal use. And she had no intention of making the money last. First thing on the agenda was an international getaway with her friend Rachel Williams. But the trip wasn't just a whim. Anna's visa stipulated that she leave the U.S. and re-enter every three months. By mid-May, she'd have to leave the country. But this time, she didn't want to just return to Germany and kill time. She wanted to make it a memorable trip, one that was rife with Instagrammable experiences. So Anna suggested she and Rachel go to Morocco for their girls' trip. It was a bit further away than Rachel expected, but she knew Anna was paying for their accommodations. So, as usual, she went along with her friend's idea. But this time, Anna took things to the next level. She booked them into a five-star hotel called La Mamounia, and they wouldn't just have a room, they'd have their own private house 
or Riyadh, with three bedrooms, its own pool, and a private butler, all for $7,500 a night. Despite the -the over-the-top cost, Rachel didn't bat an eye. She was used to Anna spending an exorbitant amount on hotels. Still, it was a lot of space for just two of them. So, to fill up the house, they invited a couple more people. Their fitness trainer, Casey, and a videographer, Jesse, who'd filmed the trip for a supposed documentary about Anna and her art club. Because Casey and Jesse were technically going to be working on the trip, Anna said she'd pay for their flights, Rachel's too. But Anna never got around to booking the flights. Rachel wasn't too concerned. Anna often left things until the last minute, and she also seemed incredibly busy. Rachel knew she'd get to it eventually. In the middle of all of this, Anna went out of town. She decided to go to Omaha, Nebraska for Warren Buffett's annual shareholders meeting. What she intended to make happen for herself there is unclear, but we do know she didn't want to take a commercial flight. So Anna chartered a private jet for $35,000. It was a bill she had no intention of paying. Normally, a private jet company won't let anyone on a plane unless they've paid in full. But Anna found a workaround. First, she told the jet company that a wire transfer was on the way, one of her favorite excuses. And then she showed them a forged document of all of her overseas accounts. That was all it took. Anna flew privately to Omaha, like the celebrity heiress she pretended to be. Looking at her actions here, and the indignant way she responded when her hotel asked her to pay her bill, Anna seemed to think she deserved nothing but the very best in life. As far as we can tell, she's never been diagnosed with any mental conditions, but her behavior certainly aligns with some of the symptoms seen in people with narcissistic personality disorder. According to a 2016 study from Irina Pilk and Malgorjata E. Gornik Duros, At the University of Silesia in Katowice, overt materialism and grandiose narcissism can go hand in hand. Someone with grandiose narcissism usually feels driven to prove their over-the-top beliefs about themselves. One way to do this is buying expensive goods and services that reflect those beliefs. Thinking about it this way, we can understand that perhaps Anna's outrageous spending wasn't because she was a compulsive shopper, but because doing so confirmed her increasingly outlandish beliefs about herself. It wasn't enough that it seems she thought she needed to meet with Warren Buffett. She had to travel there like one of his millionaire cronies. Needless to say, no wire transfer went through to the private jet company. They canceled her return flight, and Anna had to fly commercial back to New York. But Anna wasn't bothered by the temporary downgrade. She still had her luxurious getaway planned for herself and her friends a few days later, and she had a master strategy in place to make sure that it would be on someone else's dime. But to pull it off, she had to wait until the very last minute. Anna waited until the day they were supposed to leave to finally book the plane tickets. 
but she didn't do it herself like she promised. At the 11th hour, she asked Rachel to do it through a travel agent, saying she was too busy in meetings. Rachel was only too eager to help because the delay was stressing everyone out. Anna instructed Rachel to book four one-way tickets using Anna's debit card. Rachel happily agreed. It was the least she could do. She was interested to notice that Anna's name appeared different on her debit card. It wasn't Anna Delvey, but Anna Sorokin Delvey. Still, she shrugged off the weirdness. It didn't seem that important. Not yet, anyway. But then Rachel's travel agent called back. The debit card had been declined. Anna would need to call her bank to authorize the charges. Rachel let Anna know, and then Anna texted back that she was on hold with her bank. She explained that they needed to raise her spending limit because she'd put their pricey hotel reservation on the same card. But then, minutes later, Anna sent another text, saying that the airline had just called her. Apparently, they were about to lose their reservation, unless the tickets were bought in the next 10 minutes. Hearing that, Rachel didn't even think twice. She offered to put the flights on her card instead. Seemingly grateful, Anna assured her she'd pay her back for the $4,000. But once they got to Morocco, Anna's debit card was still being declined. Rachel figured the bank was moving at a glacial pace, but that things would be sorted out before long. So when Anna bought dresses at an outdoor market in Marrakesh, and when she ordered expensive dinners and lunches, Rachel again offered her credit card, which Anna accepted. But it set a dangerous precedent. After they'd been in Morocco a couple of days, Rachel noticed the hotel staff trying to speak to Anna in private. It seemed there was a problem with the card she'd given them, too. But Anna wasn't worried. Mostly, she just seemed aggravated by their questions, as if there were no issue at all. Finally, on their fifth day, hotel staff showed up at their villa. The card Anna had given them for the reservation didn't work. They needed a working card, and they needed it now. While Anna called her bank, Rachel stepped away to give her some privacy. But when she returned, she saw Anna simply staring ahead, her phone untouched on the table. She seemed strangely calm. The hotel staff, on the other hand, were getting impatient. They hovered by the door, blocking the way out. Rachel sensed the scene turning sour. And then one of the staff members asked Rachel if they could use her card. Rachel was flustered and didn't know what to say. She didn't have that kind of money. But the man was quick to tell her the card wouldn't be charged. It would just be used for a temporary hold, a mere formality. So Rachel handed over her American Express, and the men disappeared. But then one of them came back with a receipt he needed her to sign, a pre-authorization, he explained. Rachel signed, eager for the whole thing to be over with. With that, Anna blithely thanked her, and the ordeal was over. Or so it seemed. The group then set off on a tour of Villa Oasis, the one-time home of Yves Saint Laurent. 
It was an on-brand luxury experience for the art-obsessed Anna, one she wasn't going to miss out on. The private tour required an advance reservation and a $1,600 donation. Now, Rachel assumed Anna had paid the donation when she made the booking, but you know what they say about assuming. After the tour was over, Rachel found out she was wrong. Now they were expected to plunk down almost $2,000 on the spot. At this stage, Anna just looked at Rachel, who dug into her wallet, only to remember that her Amex was still being held at their hotel front desk. Out of options, she gave them her debit card, knowing full well there wasn't enough in her account to cover the charge. When it was declined, the museum staff insisted the group return to the hotel to fetch Rachel's credit card, with a chaperone from the Yves Saint Laurent house to make sure they came back. But back in the hotel, the front desk staff weren't keen to let Rachel's card go without another one to hold in its place. With Anna's accounts proving useless, Rachel was forced to hand over her corporate credit card to the hotel. In exchange, they returned her private Amex so she could use it to pay for the tour. Before she left the front desk, she instructed the staff that her corporate card was just for them to hold until she got back. It was not to be charged. They agreed. Then she returned to the Villa Oasis, where she handed over her personal credit card so the $1,600 fee could be paid. But in a heart-stopping moment, her card was declined. Rachel was escorted into the back room, away from the beautiful home she'd just toured. There, in a space devoid of luxury, the staff members asked her how she wanted to resolve the situation. Rachel was out of money, out of time, and out of options. And Anna? She was nowhere to be seen. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, when Anna's schemes finally start to come unraveled and the friend she betrayed seeks her revenge. For more information on Anna Delvey, amongst the many sources we used, we found My Friend Anna by Rachel Deloche-Williams, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joanna Philbin, with writing assistance by Joel Callen and Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 